1: Text KID to 323232.
2: Hi, this is Don Most, and you're listening to The Forum with Jim and Florence. Hi everyone, this is Jim
3: Jackson. Welcome to the forum and boy, I'm telling you, I've been watching Locked Up Abroad for a long time and this episode that we have with our guests just really touched my heart and I've been watching this episode now six times. So call me weird, but it fascinates me, this story. So I'm very excited. First of all, we wanted to give big, big thank yous for our introduced Florence and our guests to everyone supporting our podcast, celebrities, Kathy Ireland, must be sick of us from retweeting so much and thank you all the great great support that we're getting from all of the celebrities and also you our listeners we are so appreciative i've answered all the dms so if you do have any questions please dm i'll help you out as much as i can if i'm a little slow i do get a lot of dms please forgive me one of you said you didn't answer me and until the next day well i'm really sorry i get a lot of dms but We really do try to support and Florence is smarter than me. I would, I would actually DM her. She's, uh, she's the brains of the outfit, (laughs) Uh, but again, we, we love you guys. Our NFL podcast will be back on. We're going to do some draft things, but the writer's podcast and the new Orleans podcast has just exploded. It's amazing all the things that we're doing. Also Jack's Confidential will be back up. We're going to do some controversial things in the in the animal, some of the things in the animal industry and also about all of the Japan. I'm going to probably get killed by a Japanese IOC person but all of the radiation If you remember where Japan is having the Olympics, that was a nuclear accident in the history of the world, and the ground is still irradiated, and that's where they're going to start having the opening ceremonies and some other things in the Olympics, and they're they're not telling the olympians that it's dangerous and they've had scientists there testing it so again i'm stirring it up i know but we're trying to get those stories out that no one else will talk about and also the horse racing with all the race horses being killed the absolute horrendous situation with horse racing so anyway we have a lot of things planned florence i'm losing my breath we're doing so much and how are you and this beautiful um, saturday
1: Yeah, I'm doing great. And it is a beautiful Saturday here on the East Coast. And yes, I'm really excited about our next guest. I've also been watching Locked Up Abroad. And I'm excited because his episode is probably one of the best episodes. And his name is Jesse Muskell. And it's from National Geographic Channel's Locked Up Abroad. And Jesse, welcome to the forum. We're very happy to have you here.
2: Thanks so much. It's an honor.
3: Yes, Jesse. Boy, like I was telling you off camera, I've got literally eight pages of notes, so I'm going <laughs> to condense it down so you don't lose your voice. Um, first of Try. all, we all, if we get into drugs, we get into alcohol, we get into anything that's that's addictive. A lot of times it's just a mass pain and a mass things that we've, traumas that we've gone through. You definitely had some traumas when you grew up. Talk about your relationship with your parents, which wasn't, that close or good, and also the tragic death of your, of your sister, and just kind of what was going on with you when you were younger.
2: All right, Jim. Uh, so, thanks for having me again. Uh, the sure. yeah, that's a heavy question to open. That. <laughs> the um, <clears throat> growing up was uh, was challenging um, in the sense that my dad was a pastor of a somewhat, how do I put this, strenuous church. Uh, They had a lot of rules and regulations. Um, Anybody that's of a religious tint would probably recognize me saying that they had kind of an Old Testament perspective on things. Um, Growing up, uh, we had uh, a lot of rules we had to follow. For instance, Saturday, uh, was, was Sabbath. Uh, so while the rest of the world goes to church on Sundays, we were going to church on Saturday. The Sabbath began at sundown, kind of in the Jewish tradition. So we had a uh, sunrise and sunset t- table in our house all the time. So I knew down to the minute when I had to stop watching TV and enjoying myself and get serious. Uh, so <clears throat> being a pastor's son, I definitely stretched the definition of what it was to be a a PK or a pastor's kid because (laughs) most of those kids had the reputation of being rebels and kind of lawbreakers. And I certainly um, didn't buck that trend. And then uh, you also asked about my sister. My sister was born on Christmas and um, she wasn't but three years old when she got diagnosed with leukemia. It was a really tragic situation. She was um, one, uh, one of four children and the only daughter my parents had. So uh, losing her within the year after she was diagnosed was just uh, devastating for the whole family.
3: Yeah. Now, Jesse, Mm -hmm. I've seen some people, was there a certain name to your father's church or or denomination or anything? Because some have said it was a cult. It was almost a cult. Was it a cult? Was it just really (laughs) true?
2: Actually, that's, (laughs) that's actually a story I've wanted to tell for some time, Jim. I'm glad you asked. The uh, jumping ahead in the story a bit, while I was in prison, I had a group of church women come to visit foreign prisoners in the Thai jail. And one of them uh, who, you know, randomly sat in front of me, uh, her name, I, I don't think she, mine was Mio, And she and I began talking as, you, as we have. And it came out within the first 10 minutes of the conversation when I said, yeah, my dad was a pastor at Worldwide Church of God. And their founder was Herbert W. Armstrong. Well, her face kind (laughs) of changed dramatically. And she said, Jesse, I've been studying religion at the university. And uh, that's one of three churches we've been studying in our cults class. Oh. so (laughs) that church. Wow. I didn't
3: know it was that. I was trying to research what it, it was hard to find out what church he was affiliated with. Wow, that is deep, because I know that church. Okay. okay. That answers everything. Wow. <laughs> that is a tough go, because like you said, they had a lot of Old Testament philosophies, kind of mixing Jewish in with Christianity, and it was Shrek. And oh, yeah. Boy, now, I can, now I can understand it. Now you become an adult, you, life goes on, and you, you become a very successful in Buffalo, New York and be you were selling cell phones you were doing very well you were making good money was it money or was it just you were bored the tra- i know kind of the answer to this but for our listeners what was the transition because all of a sudden then you became a you decided to go to Korea South Korea and be a teacher and teach English what was the kind of transition uh, what was your mentality during that time
2: i remember one particular day, I was just kind of frustrated with the whole uh, situation in the sense that uh, I I was actually working for Verizon, which is the biggest carrier. And, you know, I I remembered we'd gone through a couple of mergers. And before the mergers, we'd just been this young kind of bootstrap type of company. We only had Mm -hmm. 700 salespeople in the state of New York. So, you know that was kind of my competition, and we were going up against the big players. So I kind of like that underdog mentality. That's always been one sure. thing. And uh, once you know, we merged into Bell Atlantic Mobile, and then we merged into Verizon Wireless, and all of a sudden, I found myself kind of feeling like um, I did at my first job when I was 15 years old, flipping hamburgers kind of on an assembly line. Sure. <laughs> so the chase wasn't really there. It wasn't a challenge in terms of sales. I love you know, kind of figuring out how to approach situations to make a close a deal. And so I was just kind of bored with the whole situation. And that's kind of what got me uh, thinking about the fact that my passport didn't have any stamps in it yet. Here I am 30 years old and, you know, it's a big world out there. So that that kind of that's how, how it kind of started.
3: Are you part of Bill's Mafia? Were you a big Buffalo Bill fan?
2: <laughs> I actually just saw somebody with a shirt on today. Um, I, I, honestly, I'm not even a, an NFL fan. I'm, I'm really, wow! <laughs> um, I went to plenty of games while I was there because that's what everybody does in Buffalo. Sure, Park. that's right. <laughs> I'm more in of the no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, yeah.
3: Now, you became a teacher. You were doing very well. In the episode, you said it was fulfilling. You loved the camaraderie with your other, um, other teachers. And then you started getting more into feeling bad, doing a little bit of drugs, and then you started taking ecstasy. Mm-hmm. What was that transition from taking ecstasy, taking drugs, to starting to sell and and just realize,
2: wow, I can make a little money on the side. That was the funny thing. Uh, it didn't, it was never kind of a conscious thought, like, I'm going to do that. But once I made the connection, my friends, I'm, you know, I've always been a gregarious sort. Um, sure. And I've, I always have a crowd of people around me. And so... As a leader, you know, we kind of have a responsibility to do good things because if we do bad things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we end up dragging a, a neighborhood down with us, and that was kind of the way it went. You know, I, I started getting a hold of these pills, and uh, everyone else was kind of like, hey, let's go, too. Um, so uh, that was it, really.
3: And then it started to grow. You You met with Carl and Jamie, who were <laughs> – helping you do this. Carl was a DJ. I think you, DJ Carl, I think was his name. I don't know if that's his real name, but he, he <laughs> no. was, yeah. So you were starting to really get into it and the money just started piling and you were just living the life. Wow. That must've been just an empowering, not maybe in a good way, but that must've <laughs> been an empowering feeling.
2: Yeah, so a random story from that era, you know, uh, Mediterranean food is, is one of my, well, I I don't know if I dislike any type of food, but <clears throat> there was uh, this one particular Mediterranean restaurant I liked. So we would just go in there and shut it down and, you know, bring our friends in and just throw a party in there and just do all kinds of ridiculous stuff. So it was, you know, it was a lot of fun um, sure. on the surface. You know, obviously what propelled it was, wasn't something that could be sustained.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you were, it said that you were making 40 to 50 grand a month and you became literally what locked up abroad said, the kingpin of South Korea ecstasy sales. You were the man, you were the main person doing all this. Did you ever once, was it just an arrogance or did you ever once think
2: that you would get caught? Oh man. (laughs) Good question, Jim. Um, I had so many close calls uh, because. Once I started giving it to all my friends, they turned around and saw the money I was making. So immediately, uh, you know, Carl and Jamie were just two that I named in the in the show, but there was a couple dozen people who were turning around and giving it to all their friends. The thing you have to remember is there were fifteen thousand English teachers in Korea that year. Mm. So pretty much anybody. And this is a pretty poor general, generalization, but anyone who's willing to uproot themselves from first world Western countries and travel to Korea and sign a one-year contract probably smokes marijuana, probably is willing to do some drugs, <laughs> yeah. probably likes to drink, drink on the weekend. So I figured that I had about 14,999 potential customers, and that's mm, I not see. too far from what it turned into.
3: Sure. Now, you all of a sudden, you met a girl, a bartender, I think you called it, Sue Young. And just before we get into all that, did you ever see her again after you went to jail?
2: She came and visited.
3: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, right
2: away. Right away. That's fantastic.
3: Did you guys keep a relationship, at least pen pals or anything, or was it just she came to visit and then took off?
2: I actually actually, uh, texted her the other
3: day. Wow. That is fantastic. So you guys still stay in a little bit
2: of contact. Yeah, not so much. Uh she married another fellow, another American, as it turned out, who's a DJ, pretty successful over there. And they have a child now. So she's happy. Go ahead. Did she get in trouble? Um so in the show, she called Sunday morning. The time that was the moment at which she was released from jail. Uh she stayed overnight. Uh, oh now, here's, that's it. <laughs> Now here's another story nobody nobody's ever heard, which uh, is kind of cool for your listeners. Um, sure. So so the week before all this went down, I had flown to uh, San Francisco to visit a friend, mm-hmm. and while I was there, I went into the Tenderloin. They had a one of these smoke shops where you can buy all these bongs and, oh, sure. and paraphernalia and so forth. So I went in there and bought eight or ten of these uh, false bottom bathroom bathroom. Um, Cleansers and that sort of thing. So I had like mm-hmm. a shaving can with you know those. That, that it looked like a barbasol can, but you unscrew the bottom and hide drugs <laughs> in up? it. So I, so she told me when they raided the um, apartment the following weekend that the police off there was fifteen or so police officers scouring the apartment looking for drugs. They took the safe full of money. They uh-huh. took. Um, I had one of these big uh, hookahs, like a six foot shisha oh, yeah. hookah. And uh, hashish was pretty big over there as well. So the um, cabinet in which I had stashed all the drugs, which were all inside these false bottom cans and so forth, the police officer, she said, handcuffed, she sat right next to him as he pulled each one of these secret bottles out, put them on the floor, looked in the back, and then put them all back in and closed up the cabinet.
3: Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Amazing.
2: Well, what's amazing about it is she would never have gotten out of prison if they had found that stuff.
3: That's what I'm saying. How lucky can you, she must have been? Just losing it, thinking <laughs> that wow, if they these. find that I'm I'm in prison too. <laughs> yeah. So, so because they didn't find anything on her, even though, now I wanted to ask also, Jamie, was he a narc or was he? J- did he just get scared and telling all you guys?
2: No, he wasn't a narc. Uh, he got into a side deal with a korean and the korean turned out to be a narc um, oh. and he made a lot he made big news over there for a couple of weeks and uh to get out of trouble drew the map to my apartment and of course that you know sealed the deal
3: oh my gosh so jamie didn't do any prison time then
2: i have no idea uh mm-hmm. i've never seen or heard from him since uh, before I left that weekend to go to Taiwan.
3: Now what about DJ Carl? When you guys went to prison, you guys were caught, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Did you ever see him again?
2: Yeah, that's um, that's one of those things, if you catch the beginning, it says uh, some of the details have been changed for dramatization. Yeah,
3: that's why I'm asking you.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: we know television.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I think it, um, he actually, he and I did separate at the juncture they said we did. But mm-hmm. a couple of months later, I got, uh, the building chief, I was in a really plush building. We had a band and lots of sports facilities and, and really nice, really nice buildings. So I was able to get him transferred into my building maybe six or eight months after we arrived. So he and I were together for the majority of his two-year sentence.
3: Wow, okay. I, I didn't know that. That, that's, that really is good to know. Uh, do you guys keep yeah. in touch still?
2: Uh, off and on, yeah. He's... Um, He's he's still traveling the world and uh, uh, still in the internet marketing scene uh, as we both are. But yeah, he's he's far and wide. He's he's always on the move.
3: Now you went to Taiwan to party. You found, they found all things that were, Su Young told you what was going on. You found out you're in big trouble and what stinks is I was thinking, I'm thinking like a criminal. I'm thinking, gosh, where could he have gone that would have been safe? And I'm thinking, okay, well, you're in Asia. You have no country, every country around you is high, is super aggressive with going against drugs and the the sentences and the prisons are horrible if you do drugs and then what do you have to the other side you have the middle east so i'm thinking crud there's (laughs) nowhere to go and then up above you have (laughs) japan so i'm thinking where the heck does this guy go and of course you pick thailand which might be the worst of all what was your you're just so scared (laughs) like i got we got to go somewhere uh what made you pick thailand
2: actually there was a pretty sound logic so i'm glad you asked that actually because um that doesn't that doesn't get clear at all in the movie um but the the truth of it is, Jim, um, I'd spent a great deal of time in uh, Cambodia, and I don't know how familiar you are with South- Southeast Asia. Yeah. Cambodia is, by my estimation, the most lawless place on earth. Yeah, it's scary. And I figured that I, f- I-, I knew being in a first world country, as Taiwan is, that that mm-hmm. was going to be where technology would catch up with me faster. Yeah. So my thinking was I'd go to Thailand, I'd contacted a a lawyer back in New York and he told me that I might have that small window to uh, take a flight before I was put on any lists. Mm -hmm. So I figured it was worth the risk to get out of Taiwan and I headed to Thailand with the intention of mudding it, kind of going, putting on I some see. waders and going through the the, uh, the swamp and going into Cambodia. So then, you know, my pa- last passport stamps in a different country, and I'm off the grid completely.
3: How much cash did you have on you when you went to, when you were trying to get away? Did you have any money? And couldn't they find you when you were when you electronically tried to get
2: money? That's a great point too. I, see, I I'm had, thinking uh,
3: like a criminal, Jesse. If you had yeah. me there, we might have made it. <laughs> right?
2: do <laughs> you ever get a phone call from me <laughs> just <right>. hang up. <laughs> so i see you're starting a uh, consulting business on the side here
3: oh yeah did uh so how much money did you have did you have jesse did you have enough to kind of get away or were you just you did so you had yeah. a lot of
2: cash on you i had access to cash uh-huh. it was um, there's diff- a couple different banks um i actually went and withdrew as much as i could right after that happened yeah
3: carl was the one at least in the story that blew it by talking you into starting to do more selling of drugs so you ordered some drugs was that the truth that carl kind of got you into doing it and that's how you guys got caught
2: you remember that rather savory looking safe that was in my apartment yeah all that money was returned to me Wow! Are you kidding me? No. Yeah, that's yeah. That that's kind of the remarkable thing because, and this is important. But the um, since they didn't discover any drugs in the in the Korean apartment, mm-hmm. they had no choice but to eventually return the money to my girlfriend.
3: Oh my gosh! So she had it. Yeah. Wow.
2: <laughs> yeah. So if, and, you, if
3: you had if you had cash, why did Carl want to get back into
2: selling? Well, I, 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 it it gets tiresome to to support two people. <laughs> <laughs> I
3: hear what you're saying. That enough said with that. Now you guys got <laughs> caught, and to to let our guests know, I don't know if some of you and you might have known Jesse. Uh, the big story was Kemp Ashby, who's a, a guy from New Zealand. He started creating synthetic drugs and selling them in uh, Thailand and different countries, and he actually went to a Thai prison. He died last year, I believe it was. He was worth $50 million, and they still don't have all the answers to how he died in prison. They said his health was bad. But when you go to a Thai prison, this is legit. So you get arrested. Talk about when you first went into and just the – Extreme conditions that you were you were under.
2: That's where I get emotional because getting to the prison was was the hard part. Mm-hmm. If you recall, there was a couple of days there before we arrived at the prison that were pretty rough, physically, mm-hmm. uh, violently. And to be frank, it, it was, was a beat- bit up. of a relief. Yeah, it was a bit of a relief to get there. Um, those guys were animals.
3: They were torturing um, you.
2: Yeah, it was it was bad. Um. But, yeah, the <laughs> – if you're asking about uh, this other fellow from New Zealand, I, you know, in, in terms of why somebody dies, to be frank, most people, especially foreigners, uh, fall prey to uh, addiction in the prison. Mm-hmm. Um, there's plenty of grade-A drugs inside the prisons. Most people try to do their best to check out, you know.
3: Yeah. A so. lot of disease, a lot of just just horrendous – conditions and why don't you talk about your cell and talk about literally where you were
2: sure um for the first three years i was in a place called bump Pisa peace gong and uh it's a central prison where they only put drug offenders it was uh easily the worst of five prisons that i was in in thailand out of 122 um it was uh it had been an internment camp back in the 1940s when the japanese had invaded that country and uh it was not built with comfort in mind <laughs> to say yeah. the least. It was, it was kind of a concrete jungle, no grass, or, you know, maybe a couple of trees in the whole place. And, uh, it was just uh, a hard place. I just, you know, whenever I think of that, I just, all I can remember are the had spikes on top of the w- walls within the prison and lots of barbed wire and concrete everywhere. You know, um, people getting slammed on it <laughs> quite frequently.
3: Oh yeah. And you figure, in Thailand, if you've never been there, think of Atlanta. Think of just <laughs> oppressive heat, just mm-hmm. extreme heat, and there's no air conditioning, no real. You're in a room with dozens of people, and you're and you, hopefully you got a good place to sleep, and that usually doesn't happen, and you have no ventilation. That, yeah. To me, that just right now I'm getting a little bit nervous.
2: Think I have it. to I have to give some credit to the uh, the wonderful team that filmed that episode because I spoke for a good 12 hours over, uh, excuse me, probably closer to 20 hours over two days. And while there wasn't a lot of my vocals over the 45-minute episode, Mm -hmm. the pictures he painted, most of them were incredibly detailed and spot-on in terms of uh, especially I'll dial into that first night when I had to lay down next to the toilet. That Mm -hmm. was pretty much precisely as it happened and it was it was atrocious and <laughs> I mean I've never had anything close to being un- that uncomfortable the other thing also was the heat as you mentioned Jim you know you're looking at 100, 100 degree days every day all year uh, with maybe a month of uh, monsoon rains in March or February and uh, I sweat literally I, for the first three years I never stopped <laughs> yeah. so hot. yeah
3: now, when you were there, you the one thing that I wanted to ask you is there was a really young guy in there that gave you his food. The food is like most prisons in, those, in Asia and some in, in other parts of the country. They're very corrupt. They buy the food or they keep it and resell it or they keep it for themselves. So it was hard to get a good meal there. But you befriended a young guy that was a very happy guy. He smiled a lot, you said, and he just kind of was a light in a dark place. And do you, what was his name? Not the point. Yeah. <laughs> and he, and he, he passed away. He was beaten up. He he passed away. And what a sad thing that must've been because it was a, he seemed like a really good guy and he seen, and he showed you compassion and care in a place that really is just an evil, evil, sad place. And then kind of what changed your life in the wor- in the bad way you finally got someone to visit you. I believe from the consulate It was a Thai national, and did you? And it showed in the episode. You went off on him, and did that really happen?
2: I I did uh, bless him out a little bit. I did not. Spit. <laughs> <laughs> I've never spit on anyone. I was a little bit alarmed when I saw that. But <laughs> it, it made for good television. It, it was
3: it was great, and what's sad is that that guy just said, well, screw you. You know, I'm, I'm out of here. But to your credit, as we talked about, you learned Thai, and that must have been an incredible thing for people that you communicated with. You became a great communicator. You started doing – you became baptized. You started spreading Christianity in a good way and really being a light. And the one thing that really touched me is you said, I decided to be happy. What was that transition where you just kind of said, I am not going to let this place kill me. I'm not going to let this place destroy my spirit. That must have been a real epiphany for you.
2: That's actually the message, Jim. And I thank you for asking that. The, uh...
0: absolutely anybody could be like mary be like mary log on to jumbocasino.com and play for free now no purchase necessary void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner
2: yes. uh, going to that horrific place and getting to know the darkest side of the planet enables me to to know heaven on earth in that sense and uh, the the very idea of learning the language was was really scoffed at because most foreigners were so mad at being in there and they just hated the ties and they wanted nothing to do with them. So there was this real divide. And, and that's, you know, something that I've really benefited from being the minority and being discriminated against. Mm -hmm. Um, but rather than kind of let that status quo remain, um, got the idea somewhere. It wasn't my own idea, but somewhere along the way to become the master of my domain.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And when you're, when you've lost all your freedoms, it's a Stephen Covey principle to focus on what you can influence and what you can change. Mm -hmm. And for me, the only thing I could do was to learn to communicate with those around me and to build relationships with the guards, with the fellow prisoners. And uh, that that single thing, learning the language and having the humility to sit down with them and ask them how to speak, that utterly changed the time that I spent there.
3: Mm-hmm. Now, what I, when you do that, I, I kind of get a little bit emotional. I think of Shawshank Redemption when they kept saying, why do you care about music? Timothy Robbins, his, uh, <laughs> right. why do you care about Mozart? Why do you care about music? Why? And he says, because it's in here. And that's yes. something that they can't take away from me.
2: Viktor Frankl was the, I, I presume he had to have some influence on that movie in mm-hmm. the sense that, you know, when he was in the concentration camps, he just watched everybody getting slain around him, and dying from all kinds of mm-hmm. horrid events. And, you know, yeah, he just, he, he just recognized that wall, you know, nobody can come mm-hmm. into my brain unless I give them the permission.
3: Yeah. And, and uh, we
2: can, tr- yep.
3: That's amazing, Jesse. Uh, that is so inspiring. Cause There are people. And to be honest with you, Jesse, I think we've gone too far with drugs in the United States, a lot of people with some minor drug situations, and they're doing long periods of time. And that's just my personal opinion. And I think that a lot of times we could help people and when you keep that pause positivity again the outside things can't touch you they can't touch what's inside you and i think that's a huge message for even people that are incarcerated now if they hear this so i think that's a great message now two things i want to get to and florence has some questions too you your brother ben wrote you a letter yeah. and it touched your spirit he said i know you screwed up i know you made some bad mistakes but i love you and that mm. must have just been amazing, a feeling. Man.
2: You know, that so much of my story is about redemption. Mm-hmm. And to have had that contentious relationship with Ben and my entire family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll be honest, it's not entirely healed today among some of my family members. You know, these sure. types of things, um, they kind of stick around. And it, it can be hard to overcome. But uh, it's important to look at where we can have an impact and where we can be a light. And it's not always the places we want to. But with Ben, it was uh, one side side effect of that letter was when I finished reading the letter, I kind of closed my tear ducts with uh, a new muscle in my face I didn't know I had. Mm. Um, and I didn't, <laughs> I, I realized pre, uh, crying in the prison was not a good idea. That was not going to hurt me any friends so I I literally didn't cry from that day on until um, I was in an airplane in Japan uh, we were leaving for Tokyo and flying back to LA I was still in shackles I was still under a life sentence with uh, two federal guards but when we boarded that second plane we went from Bangkok to Tokyo and when when I got on the plane in Tokyo I asked if I could have the window seat so I had the two guards sitting to my left and I was looking out the window and I'm, I was just staring at it for a second. I realized there's something different about this window. I realized it was the first window I'd looked out where there wasn't a wall and there was no wow. barbed wire. And there was this beautiful green grass just blowing ever so softly and it just stretched as far as the eye could see. That's when I started crying 5 five years worth of tears came out. It wow. was like a 30 minute Literally just pouring my shirts all wet. I'm just crying all these tears that I had held in for five years. That's mm-hmm. really cathartic.
3: <laughs> Something that we didn't talk about, Jesse, and this is why someone will say, gosh, the emotions that come out. When you are a drug dealer or when you're doing anything with drugs in Thailand, as Jesse points out in the show, you are dirt. They don't consider, they, you're the lowest of lows. And actually a, a Thai person in there that could speak English told you you're never leaving here. It's actually a life sentence and also a death sentence, I believe, of its certain amount mm-hmm. of drugs, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the manufacturing portion of it was death. Yeah. And I was under death penalty for over a year. Uh, so yeah, they have a firing squad in Thailand.
3: Yikes. So there's, there's no, that's why when you you see the emotions Jesse has when he goes from possibly being killed and then all of a sudden he sees this beauty without these barriers. I mean, it must have just been an amazing uh, time for you just to kind of reflect and to kind of release all that uh, anger and pain. And, and what there is a happy story. Some of you are going, Jim, I'm, I'm crying here. Help me out. There is a happy story. So stick with us. The, ne- the person that you spit on and you yelled at from the consulate, came back three years later because you had been sending him letters in Thai, and he came and made a joke with you and kind of teased you, and you eventually got extradited to the United States. And what's so amazing, you want to know how tough these prisons are? I think Jesse had said that every one year, the U.S. considers every one year in a Thai prison six years in the United States prison. And so Jesse eventually got out and he took a, he said he took a four day ride back home. And what were your feelings then? It's like, now what? I'm out. I went from death row to now I'm out. I mean, just so many emotions in such a short period of time, years, five, six years. What was your feeling when you came back? And again, something I wanted to ask, was your family still kind of involved in that church philosophy where they changed? How was your relationship when you came back? Did you kind of warm up quick? You explained yourself because there's a lot of judgment, obviously, in the family towards you. What was that whole scene like?
2: (sighs) Great question. Really great question. Uh, So I'll back up just a, a bit because when I went in, it was as if, you know the you know the saying those who uh, th- those who don't don't matter uh we don't want to worry about and those who do mm-hmm. matter don't mind how we are and mm-hmm. for me that was true uh those those who didn't matter you know you know those they just everything just got really clear most people faded from view when I went into prison it's like going into an alternate universe and pretty much everything that you knew is it just dies it's just mm-hmm. like a, a flower just falls right over and uh the people that mattered stuck around and they didn't mind that I'd screwed up and probably would live the rest of my life behind bars. And so Mm -hmm. when I came home after that long four day bus ride, thank you, Greyhound. uh, (laughs) (laughs) When I came home, um, the other thing that really surprised me, um, we hear a lot about people in in recidivism where people want to go back to prison or they do foolish things because they're respected on the inside and the outside becomes this horrible thing where they don't have status and they don't have resources or friends and and they just can't manage. I sensed that. And had I been in there longer, I don't know how I would have done. Uh, The first year I was home, it was very hard. I was 37 years old. I had very little resources. Um, And with a felon criminal record now, I remember going to um, the local gym And I I tried to get a job as a cashier for minimum wage, and uh, I was shot down. Um, I couldn't find work anywhere, so it was really hard starting out.
3: What eventually kind of made you be – you now are a successful businessman. You have a PR firm, copyright. What kind of made you – because, again, you learned those skills in prison – and you copywriting and some of the other things that you did that helped you later and there's some other things that when you watch the show and you read about him it's fascinating how you became an expert at communicating an expert at communicating with uh, people in the entity of prison where you could help and why don't you talk about that and how that kind of formed into your career now.
2: Again, I have to thank my brother. Uh, he smuggled books in about copywriting. And again, copywriting is, is, for those who don't know, simply the words that you see on a website or um, anytime there's a product or service being sold. It, it's when you get emails telling you to go do something. It's, it's, it's all the written words of the sales process. And my brother sent me books and books about how to do that. Mm-hmm. Because I had a literature degree uh, from University of New York, and he uh, he figured that would be a good compliment. And so, um, I just studied those books, and obviously, I'm doing a lot of writing. Um, I, I credit the fact that um, learning that language, cake uh, cake frosting is the phrase that comes to mind when I think about the Thai language. It just looks like cake frosting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they've got a you know something like sixty six letters in their alphabet. And so learning all that was, was uh, using my, using my brain in a completely different way. And so, you know, it was almost like doing a lot of exercise in prison mentally. And so Mm -hmm. I came home with an able brain, you know, wasn't addled by drugs. I stayed away from that stuff and uh, just worked out. And, um, so coming back, I couldn't give up, Jim. I <laughs> said, you know, it sure. took a while, but I just, just kept at it. And uh, eventually things things started happening. Kind of the message is like, it just, you know, when things don't seem to be going your way, just keep doing the right things. Keep putting one foot in front of the other, and eventually things will go your way.
1: Based on everything you said, um, your mm. message, which I think is very inspirational, and I think that a lot of people can relate about building your life up again. And, mm. you know, especially coming back after all you've been through, were you able to, you know, build your personal life up again, have a family of your own? Were you able to, you know, kind of start over?
2: Yeah, that's, boy, you guys don't pull punches, do you? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Florence. That's a good question. And yeah, it was, uh, it was, that was really challenging because to be frank, the mindset that got me into prison was definitely not the, the the set of principles and concepts that would allow me to thrive in, in you know, proper criminal free society. So I, I did have a lot of anti social thinking and negativity that goes with being being in prison and being into criminal acts. But the biggest thing, Florence, for me was coming home and um, getting married right away. This was <laughs> actually a disaster. Um, I got oh, married wow. with, when I was in prison, I interviewed a lot of older fellows, you may have known, you may have seen where I kind of pretended to be a journalist while I was in there,
1: yeah. So,
2: yeah. kind of my thinking was, you know, I'm not a prisoner. I'm just here on assignment. And so I was blessed in a way because I got to meet all these older fellows, you know, say 50 and up, and when they would come into prison, I would get to ask them, you know, what's your biggest regret in life? Because I learned the language, and so I, you know, I got to ask them all sorts of inc- interesting questions. You know, if you could go out and do it all again, what would you do? And the pervasive number one question, number one answer to the, all these questions was, I would have a family and I would have children because now I'm older, mm-hmm. and I always thought I could do it later, and now later has become never.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, and so I, I took be- that a little bit out of the organic context, and um, I actually had a one-page set of goals when I got home and I accomplished all but two after about a year and a half. And the two that I hadn't accomplished were find a wife and have some children.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. so I ended up marrying uh, someone um, a couple of years out and uh, that lasted about three years. So mm-hmm. um, what did I learn? What I hadn't learned up to that point, <laughs> um, I definitely, learn in hyper speed (laughs) within the context of a a failed marriage that's that's another thing you know it's like it's kind of like i kind of thought that this would be surviving prison and getting out early was kind of going to be the me riding off into the sunset and living a happily ever after life Mm -hmm. and of course that's not the case because the conveyor belt belt of life is always Kind of throwing stuff at us, and I like to think of it as opportunities to learn and grow. And I've certainly had my share of growth opportunities, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah,
1: Your life, your life is extraordinary, to say the least. I mean, I, I'm kind of curious. Um, have you ever thought of writing a book, of putting, really putting it out there in a book, and really sharing? I mean, going even beyond. Um, locked up abroad, and and really just putting your story out there.
2: Yeah, um, Florence. In fact, I've got I've got a uh, manuscript now. Wow. The uh, the thing was publishing that I've had it for. I, I wrote most of it in prison, and then I came home. I had an editor on it, and uh, it's actually just been fairly painful to go through that.
1: Sure. Um, I'm sorry. And- <laughs>
2: Yeah, so here's a quick, funny side story. I was uh, the first year I was in prison. We had some alternate embassy people come visit me, and they said, "Oh my gosh, Jesse, there's this great new show. It's called Locked Up Abroad. You have to be on it." And so, I, you know, I'm like, "Yeah, that's great." Um, I'm here in <laughs> oh, that was 12 years ago.
3: Wow. And,
2: you know, I was home for these that's past awful. seven years, and it wasn't until now that I was really able to uh even face all this stuff and talk about it so it was yeah. last June yeah. when I went over to London and filmed it so um it's it's kind of a process and I'd love to publish a book uh, that's certainly in the works I'd love to uh I'd love to share the story you know as much as I can to inspire people but um, yeah. all in all in his timing
3: that's right yeah. and uh the two shows you don't want to be on is autopsy and locked up abroad so i could see her your... <laughs> I can see your worries with that but uh but I think with um with your story there is happy ending you're doing well you're speaking you're doing so many things people are looking up to you for advice and for communication and copywriting and business and we're going to give all the information about Jesse next week so we're going to put just for the next month or so we're going to just continue and for down the road we're going to continue to promote Jesse and make sure that you get to his services and to his story and when people people say well why doesn't he write a book or why doesn't he do that we ask that but in reality you realize that every time he talks about it every time he brings it up there's flashbacks, there's feelings, there's emotions Beautiful. that you're going through. So it's easy for mm-hmm. us to ask these questions, but it's not easy for Jesse to answer them because there's a lot of emotions backed up and he's lived a lot in his, younger, in his young life. So it's very important that we take these, and these shows and not just look at them as entertainment and realize there's people here and there's lives here. And to go from that, Jesse, your mother, I believe, passed away. A couple of years ago, is that true? And, but you did get a good relationship with her, and then you're, you live close to your father. At least that's what the episode said, and you've, and you've restored your relationship with your dad. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's bumps mm-hmm. in the road. Not everything's going to go perfect, <laughs> but is everything going okay with you and your dad? And again, I wanted to ask you, is he still involved with that church?
2: Oh yeah, sorry I missed that point earlier. He—that's uh, the redemption story that that isn't told. Um, mm-hmm. Since you do have a little bit of a background with um, the Worldwide Church of God, um, I'll, I'll say this: He was on board when they did a one eighty in their philosophy. Mm. You know, to and to be in, you know, into your sixties when your. Ch- Excuse me, when your church says after thirty years of living one way and going to church on Saturdays, they completely changed their philosophies after Herbert W. Armstrong died. Mm-hmm. And they said, All right, now we're gonna go to church mm-hmm. on Sundays. We're not better than everybody else, as we previously thought.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: we're just gonna flip all of our positions on it on their head. And when that happened, my mother stayed with the old version. Yeah. And the, the church split in half. And my dad went with the new version and he changed his brain and he changed his philosophies and he became the dad that I never had. So he mm. did more change, I think, so than I did.
3: Wow. Today,
2: he, he literally does. He lives about 1.2 miles away. And I know because I jog over there sometimes, <laughs> uh, but he and I are best friends. We have a wonderful oh. relationship. Uh, he's, he's remarried now um, and to a wonderful woman named Rhonda. I uh, love her and I call her mom. Um, so we just have a wonderful relationship there. Uh, and then the other thing kind of to your point, Florence, is that, um, from all of this, I came up with the idea that while drugs are kind of a worst case scenario for people in addiction and kind of faulty thinking, recovery is possible from that. And from any other thing that kind of ails human beings, you know, like I mentioned before divorce, that could be something you have to recover from. And we do have the ability to author our own recovery and kind of rest that pen from the from the you know unseen hand of whatever it is that afflicts us. And so that's where the podcast, the thing that was uh, mentioned at the very end of the episode, came from—the idea of Recovery Authors Podcast.
3: And we're going to be sharing that site as well. We're friends with Dopey. We're friends with a lot of these people that have some amazing podcasts on recovery. And it just, it's so inspiring because again, I've been on the other side, Jesse, where I've been judgmental on someone and it, it, there's a lot of pain both ways. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to trust. So there's a lot of things and a lot of barriers that you have to go through when something like this. And, uh, it's hard to forgive. It's hard to get, get over it. But, but again, there is redemption. There is, uh, uh, you know, to be safe from something like this, because a lot of people feel I'm just hopeless. It's the opiate crisis with so many people just not wanting to be in pain any, anymore. And that's something that definitely we need to fill our hearts with something more than just alcohol, drugs, or whatever we're into. Uh, that's, Amen. that's hurting us. So that, that's important. Jesse, you get the last word. What do you want people and ending to know about your story.
2: I would just like to say, Jim, and, and again, thanks for having me on guys. It's been a really, oh, uh, sure. We experience. loved it.
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: I like to say, and, and in my podcast with uh, recovery authors, I'd just like to say if, uh, if it's not all right, because we go through so much in life mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and if you, you're looking around and your life's not the way you want it, or you're, you're suffering, suffering in some miserable situation your story's not over. So, uh, just endure. And, uh, I think a lot of things too is um asking for help. You know, there's always help out there. Um, I, I, I'll close with this personal story that just last night, I've been missing a friend of mine for a few months and uh, he, he had disappeared. We were friends in recovery. He was one of my very best friends. And last night I was driving to supper and um, I happened to pull up at a busy intersection and look to my left and um, he's holding a cardboard sign at the intersection. Oh boy.
1: Oh wow.
2: Oh. So it's funny because I realized, you know, but but for the grace of God, there goes I, and I certainly was that person. But uh, the bigger picture was that um, that had been me, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, And I realized in in the moment where I had so much compassion and and just pain, and you know, just tearing up, thinking about that. He um, he showed me we just don't know what's around the corner. So uh, it's just important if you know if we can at all to be leaders Mm -hmm. in what we do and to keep, you know, keep doing our best so that we can let the other people around us see us shine.
3: I think, I think that is amazing saying by you. And again, there's an old saying, the minute you think you're better than someone else is, the minute you lose all compassion for them. And we, ne- and we have a country so divided that everyone thinks they're better, their viewpoint's better, their political party's better, mm-hmm. their, even their football mm-hmm. team is better. <laughs> and you start thinking you're better than other people. And when you start oh, thinking man. you're better than other people, you lose the feeling of compassion for them. You lose the ability to feel for them. And when a society has done that, a society is lost. So never think you're better, never look down on anybody realize we're all going through something and be a part of the solution and be a light in their life and not just look down on them and think you're better and i think that's the message that jesse's telling tell and i love his podcast and all his writing it's about hope it's about light it's about never stop swimming never stop stop fighting never quit we all matter and jesse your story is touched me it's touched us and I'm sure it's gonna to touch many more. And I cannot wait for that book to
2: get out. <laughs> You'll be the first to know, Jim.
3: <laughs> you bet. And you are welcome anytime you're a friend of the show now, Jesse. And I'm telling you, I mean it. You anything you need, you just let it let us know. Because like I said, your story has really touched me. I'm a very huge fan of Locked Up Abroad and your story out of all of them, just really, I had to reach out to you and I'm glad you said yes, because I just, your story had to be told. So, uh, it's amazing. Why don't you lead us out, uh, Florence?
1: Yes. No, I, I, I feel the same way, Jim. This, this was incredible. Probably one of the most emotional interviews we've ever had. It was definitely, uh, a roller coaster and it was a, a great ride, but thank you so much, Jesse. Really, really appreciate you doing this. And I can't wait to be able to share this, um, on Monday with our audience. Cause I think they're really going to really love your story. And I think they're, they're definitely going to be interested in that book. We're not going to let that go. We <laughs> want to see a book movie documentary. I think, uh, I think that's in your future, definitely. So thank you. We have a
3: writer's podcast, Jesse. So uh, we have a professional writer's podcast. We need you on that. But Jesse, thank you so much. And let's keep in touch. And you guys, um, we're going to give all the stuff next week where you can contact Jesse. Please follow him. He's a great follow. And I'm telling you, his story touched me. It's just an amazing, and it's not a sad story. Oh, I feel bad about the things he went through. But it, like he said, it's all about redemption. It's all about joy. It's all about happiness. And it's about overcoming and being happy and choose to be happy. And I think that it's just an amazing message. message that he has. Thank you,
2: Jesse. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank Take care. You